Well, good morning, church. If you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews today. As you're getting ready to turn there, though, I want to ask you a question. Do you have somebody, probably in your family, that one person in your family who you're just kind of ashamed of them? Like, let's just, I don't know, if I try to figure out a way to like ask that easier. But you know what I'm talking about. That one person who's like your, your Uncle Eddie. You know what I mean? Like that one person who, like, if somebody, if you had to take a poll and everybody, you know, place bets on it, they're going to show up to Thanksgiving, you know, a little bit drunk. You know, that one person in your family, the, the black sheep that everybody just kind of knows, this is the person in our family. They're embarrassing. This is a person in our family. Don't ask them about politics at Christmas this year. This is that person in the family who just kind of embarrasses us. Uh, anybody would be willing to admit they've got one of those in their family okay if your hand's not up like it might be you um so that's uh, that's revelation today we can go with that so we've all been there and we probably first felt this when we were kids you know we all as kids we had moments we were kind of ashamed of our parents or like mom you're embarrassing me you know you church mama comes and and just licks all over your finger and he starts rubbing spit all over your face at church to get you church appropriate we've all been there and felt those things uh, for me, the first time I can remember feeling uh, shame, shame around my parents specifically was with my dad. My dad was a paint contractor, and that meant that he only could buy really junky, beat-up vehicles, I guess. And so we just had a lot of really just, you know, rusted-out paint truck or rusted-out paint van. Or for some reason, we had a station wagon. I don't know. We just had, like, stuff that was just junk, stuff that you didn't want to get dropped off in the car rider line with me. You know what I'm talking about? And so because my dad was a paint contractor, every day he didn't, like, work in an off office or anything like that. He, he kind of worked out of his truck. And so he ate out of his truck oftentimes. And so he had all sorts of just uh, McDonald's and Hardee's and all sorts of food. It was always in his trunk. And, and, and we get to school one day. It's like one of the first few days of middle school. And dad's dropping me off. It's car rider line. You know what it's like in the car line, just hustle and bustle. And everybody's out there. A lot of times there are teachers out there too. And I go to get out of my dad's truck. And so I open the door and I grab my backpack that was in the floorboard. And I get out and I go to walk into school. And behind me, I just hear just like somebody took a full garbage bag, opened it up and just dumped it out there on the sidewalk. And I look back and I see Hardee's wrappers and Big Mac boxes and, and Coke cans and Sprite cans and Gatorade bottles. And I had that moment of truth, guys, where I was like, do I pick this up and allow this moment of immense embarrassment to just continue on? Or do I just go and pretend like it didn't happen? And I chose the latter version. I just leave. And I'm like, I don't know what that happened. <laughs> We've been there, right? See, <clears throat> because that's what shame does. When you feel shame, whether it's you feel ashamed of somebody else in your family or you feel your own shame, shame makes you want to put distance between yourself and the thing that you're ashamed of. If it's a family member, you've experienced this. You have that one family member that you're kind of ashamed of. They're probably not the one you're texting or calling or just looking forward to reasons to go on vacation with, right? Some of you right now, the biggest nightmare, I said, hey, like, I'm going to give you a free spring break trip, but you have to go with that person who's really embarrassing in your family. You would go, nope, not going to do it. <laughs> give it to somebody else. But for most of us, we would be willing to admit we have not just felt shame towards people who are part of our family. We've also felt shame ourselves. When we were kids and we did that thing, we knew the first thing out of our mama's mouth was, see if you can fill in the blank. I raised you better than that. <laughs> it's a shame, right? And we feel that. Now, Satan, he knows that shame is a really good tool in his hands. He knows that shame can get us not to just feel like we did something bad, but like we are something bad. Shame can ruin and undermine our identity and who we are in Christ. And so shame really is a tool that Satan uses to create distance between us. In the same way that I was ashamed of what my dad had in the truck and all that thing, and I wanted to create as much distance between me and that Chevy S10 as possible, shame wants to do the same thing. 
Shame wants us to create distance. But God doesn't want there to be distance between you and him. And some of you right now, the distance you feel from God, shame is the culprit. And Satan wants you to feel that because he wants you to feel as far and as disconnected as God as you possibly can. And so what I want to show you today as we walk through this passage in Hebrews is what I believe is the solution to shame. And it doesn't come from something that you've got to go do. The solution to shame actually comes from who Jesus is and it comes from what we have in him. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to go there. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10 through 13 are where we're gonna be. And I'm gonna go a little bit old school today. I'm gonna to invite us to stand in just reverence and honor of God's word. Would you stand with me uh, just to show respect and honor for God's word as we read that today? If you can. Hebrews chapter two, start in verse 10, we'll go through verse 13. Verse 10 was our, our verse last week. Verse 11 is gonna be our primary verse for this Sunday. So lean in and listen close. This is the word of God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make perfect the founder of their salvation. Perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the word of God. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what it means. And we thank you for what it can mean for us today. To know that despite whatever shame we felt, whether it was shame towards other people or shame that we felt when we looked in the mirror and saw how we had fallen short of what we thought we should be or what you told us we should be, I pray that today we can come and lock eyes with Jesus, see him for who he really is, and see shame taken care of. See the distance that it created between us shrink as we fear your nearness to us today. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you are lifted up. We pray that we come to a place today where we experience how magnificent, how glorious of a savior you are. You tell us in your word that when the son of man be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And Jesus, that is my one aim today, to lift you up so that you would draw men, women, and all of us to you. In your name, amen. All right. So let's look at our passage. We're gonna do this, kind of walk through word by word, verse by verse. Hebrews 2.11. Remember, uh, the person who's writing this passage, this book, this, this stuff to the Hebrew church is not just a theologian. He's not just a guy who has a vested interest in what's happening there with this group of people. This is a pastor to the Hebrew people. And he's writing them in efforts to pastor them along in their faith. And he tells them these words. He says, for he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So the he here is Jesus. And it says that he is the one who sanctifies and that those of us who are being sanctified, we have one source. That one source is the father. And that's why that Jesus, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. So I can read that to you like three or four times like I already have and you're still going, I don't know what this means. All right. Well, in order for us to understand what this means, we've got to understand what was going on. Context is king. What was happening in the Hebrew church is they were having a hard time grasping this reality and truth that there is a God who would suffer and die for them. They liked this idea and reality of a God who would be king, a God who would rule, a God who would uh, allow uh, the world 
to be what is under them and not to be them who feel like they're under the world. They wanted a God who would kill and squelch and, and, and make it to where they weren't owned under Roman rule and reign, but they were ruling over the Romans. They wanted a king God. And now the truth is they had it, but they didn't have the king like they wanted the king. And so they have a hard time getting their mind around Jesus being a suffering king. They'd rather him be ruling on a throne, not dead right now, but living and, and setting up a big old castle right there in the center of Rome. That's what they wish he would be. And so they're having a hard time grasping that why would our God, this mighty, powerful God, this Lord of Lords, King of Kings, why would he send his son to suffer and die a criminal's death on a cross? And so that's why in verse 10, it said it was fitting that he, the author and perfecter of our faith, would become perfect through suffering and would lead many sons to glory. And he goes on to further explain. It says, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified all have one source. So the point that this pastor is trying to make to his congregation is Jesus is the one who is the author, the one who is the captain, the one who is the one who makes possible your salvation. And this sanctification, the word we're gonna lean into today, is an aspect, is a part, is, is, is an aspect to this salvation that you have now received in Christ. Last week, I gave you this big giant diagram and I told us this is what salvation is. Salvation is not just this thing you did at church camp. Salvation is not just you coming down the aisle or closing your eyes, not peeking, and just raising your hand in that moment. That is not just what salvation is. Salvation is Jesus saving your spirit, your soul, and your body. Salvation occurs at the three parts of times. It saves you from your past. It saves you from your present. And it saves you on into the future. It's where you say, I am saved. Currently, I am being saved and I will be saved. It's where I'm justified. Sanctification is happening and eventually I'm going to experience glorification and salvation is something that saves me from the penalty of sin, the power of sin right now in this very moment and the presence of sin. Cause one day I'll be in a place where sin does not rule and does not reign. Now what the pastor is doing and I'm going to try to do today is try to help them understand this word sanctification. He's going to go, okay, you get that Jesus has saved you from your past and we get that he's taking us into a future, but let's talk about right now. Let's talk about what we're going through. Let's talk about what we're feeling. Let's talk about the, the struggle and the tension that we're in. He says, this is where sanctification happens. That's why in verse 11, he busts onto the scene and he goes, listen, the one who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified, which he's kind of looking to us, he's looking to the church there, we all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call you brothers. Now, before we can get into, okay, what in the world does sanctification have to do with Jesus being my brother who's not ashamed of me? We first off need to understand really what is sanctification. So if you're taking notes, I wanna give you some definitions around that to be able to help you get a well-rounded view of what sanctification actually is. This is the process of you continually being transformed into the image of Christ. Sanctification means this. It means to make holy, to set apart for the sake of accomplishing God's perfect purpose. When we were going through the book of Ephesians, I used this illustration to help show you guys what in the world sanctification is. <clears throat> this is a log, if you didn't know. I think it's from an oak. Uh, looks oaky. Smells oaky. So sanctification, I would best describe it as this. For someone who is a baseball bat maker, at some point they have to go into the forest and they have to take wood. They have to take a tree. They have to get that down and go, okay, this piece would make a great bat. 
And when they cut that down and when they take that and bring it back to their shop, what's happening in that moment is that piece of wood is being sanctified. What's the first three words up there? Set apart. It's being set apart for a new purpose. It's not just supposed to be in the tree and give oxygen so that people don't die. This piece is gonna become a tool used to entertain people in the sport of baseball. That's its purpose. I'm gonna set it aside for this purpose. So at the moment that it's taken back to the shop, it is what? It is sanctified, but there's a process of sanctification that has to happen. Because nobody, like I'm pretty strong, but like I couldn't get up to bat and rock and roll with this bad boy. Nobody's swinging this. There's something that has to happen to get this to this. And to get from this to this is the sanctification process. So why why so many of us are incredibly frustrated in our faith right now, especially you baby Christians, you have been sanctified and you're wondering, why am I not this? It's like, God's got some stuff to do. Like you've got this weird thing going at the top right here. I don't even know, like you got this thing in your past. Over here on this side, you got some, some there was definitely something rotten in here. We got to get deal with that. We got knobs shooting out. There's some moss growing on some things in here. Probably some spider webs under there. And it's covered in bark. But when this is taken and it is set apart, it is sanctified. But there is a sanctification process that has to happen to get this to this. And that's why we suffer. That's why we strain. That's why we need spiritual discipline because from this to this is where our flesh is cut away into all that's left is truly God's perfect purpose for us. So to make this a little bit more clear and, and help us understand this, I wanna actually use scripture, not just logs and baseball bats to explain this. Paul, I think, is probably the best person to help us understand what is the sanctification thing and how is it connected to Jesus being our brother and God being our father. So if you've got a Bible, you can look at Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. It says this, Even as he, the he there is God, even as he, God, chose us in him, the him there is Jesus, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, which just hold up, stop, wait a minute, what that means is, There's not just this time and moment in your life where you're like, I choose you, God. Way before that, before the foundation of the world, like before God ever breathed light into it, before God ever put Mount Everest where it is, before God did any of that, you were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. That's wild. So that you could be holy and blameless before him. What God wants from before he ever even started the creation process, his whole hope and purpose before you were ever even created was that once you are created, you could be holy and blameless before him. That word holy is the same root of the word sanctification. You could be perfectly set apart for your purpose to be able to see and glorify and magnify and experience the love of heavenly father. That is God's grand design. That is his purpose in creating you. In love, okay. I love that part. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So let's just camp out on that word for adoption for a second. There are two kids on earth who I can't adopt. Do you know what their names are? Titus and Ezra. Why can I not adopt them? Because they're already my kids. Now there's billions of other kids who I can't adopt. But when it says here, 
In love, he predestined them for adoption. That means that up until that adoption occurred, were we his kids or were we not his kids? We were not his kids. Because if we were his kids, we would not need adoption. So this kind of control deletes this notion that when we just look at all of humanity and just go, oh, they're all God's children. Well, no. You're not God's child until you're in Christ adopted into the family. You, the Bible actually tells us, and remember, we, we gotta be people who remember what we talked about before. When we back, went back through all of Ephesians. Paul gets into Ephesians two and three, and he makes it very clear. We were all by nature children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience, destined for destruction. But in steps Jesus, it makes a way for us to be adopted out of the, the crazy wild orphanage that was planet earth. And what God does in this crazy stroke of scandalous grace, he comes in and does something that no adoptive parent has ever done. I have many friends in my life who have adopted children, but none of them have taken their own biological children and left them at the orphanage and then taken the new adopted kids home with them. But that's what God did for us. He says, I'm gonna send my son and I'm gonna leave him at the orphanage that is earth. And the orphanage that is planet earth with all its sin, with all its destruction, with all of its power of evil, it destroys the only begotten son so that people like me and you could be adopted into this family. That's why it says, in love, because you don't do that if you're not in love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen any other way. It doesn't happen because you like God and want to try out his ways. It doesn't happen because you read the gospels and you want to try on this Jesus thing. It happens through faith in Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Another passage I think even more puts this on display of the connection between Jesus as our brother and this sanctification process that's happening in our life is Romans eight twenty nine. It says, for those he foreknew, this is God now, those that God foreknew, God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That word conformed down there, that word is the same root idea that is bound up in this idea of sanctification. It's this continual conforming to the image of the son as we live on, on, on earth. That's why we know people get baptized and they don't just magically just jump out of the water and they're just ready to go. And they're just perfectly all the way that they should be. They still struggle in traffic. They still struggle with telling the truth. They still have a hard time saying no to things. And this life is this continual sanctification process where we're conformed to the image of the son in order that he might, Jesus, might be the firstborn, the key, the primary, the firstborn, the main recipient of the inheritance, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what this means for us is that you and I, if we are in Christ, we are adopted by the Father. This is sanctification here, and this is a connection between Jesus being the one who's the brother who does it. We are adopted by the Father through the Son and for a reason, to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's simply put what Romans 8.29 is talking about. And that is what he's trying to do in you through the sanctification process. So then the big question becomes, well, how in the world does he sanctify us? Well, by being what we couldn't be. That's how Jesus sanctifies us. By being what we couldn't be, which was perfect. You could never have done that. 
You were born into the sin-scarred, fallen world, and you could never be perfect because you, your first forefather, Adam, jacked it up for you, all right? You were just born into this. Kids are just born that way. You don't have to, you know, we can say our kids are cute and they're just innocent little angels, but, you know, you could go serve down there in children's ministry and you could go to the room with the youngest ones in it and you could go, nope, they're still evil. <laughs> so how does he sanctify us? By being what we couldn't be, which was perfect, so that we could have what we couldn't have, perfection. See, he had to be perfect for us. He had to come and live out the root of that word sanctification. He had to come and actually live on earth where me and you are. He couldn't just stay sanctified, perfect, holy in heaven. He had to come down here and live the saint life from birth to death in order to be one who can actually bring the sanctification process into our life. That's why our passage says these words. It says, he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, us, all have the same source. That same source is the Father. So Jesus' whole mission and goal is to go, they need to be sanctified in order to be back connected to the Father. They cannot do that, so they will not ever get that. But I am the one who is sanctified and I am the only one who can sanctify them. And he does that by coming and living a perfect life that you and I could have never lived because his whole hope and purpose is to get me and you back to the source, back to the Father, because that is where the Father gets the most glory. And so he goes from there and he says, that's why he's not ashamed to call you brothers, because his goal was God's glory. And in bringing you back into sonship and daughtership, bringing you back into adoption, into this family, he's not ashamed of that because he's doing what his daddy told him to do. So he goes on from here and the, the pastor's trying to explain this to his church. And I love the way he tries to explain this to him because what he does is he actually hearkens them back to a place of reference that they would have given honor to and they would have given credit to. He actually takes them to the Old Testament. So what you have to understand again about all this stuff being written, when the original church gets this letter to the, the, the Hebrew little house church that's there, when they get this letter, they don't have the book of Hebrews. They don't even have the book of Ephesians. They don't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What they have is like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like these literal guys who are meeting people and talking to people about this guy that was Jesus and this word and this fame and this renown about Jesus spreading around. But what they do have is the Old Testament. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is trying to go, okay, you have these holy scriptures and now you have this word of mouth testimony about Jesus Christ, about who he is. I'm gonna write to you about all this stuff about who Jesus is. And then I'm also gonna quote things from the Old Testament that prove my point. And that's why we have verses 12 and 13. He uses scripture to prove his point, which is the best way to prove points. He says, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. He's quoting Psalm 22 right here. Great Psalm to memorize. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's Psalm 22. He quotes that right there. And then again, I will put my trust in him. He's quoting Isaiah 8 right here. And again, his Isaiah 8, same passage here. Behold, I and the children God has given me. So what he's doing here is he's quoting these two passages to prove his point. And I love the fact specifically that he quotes Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a psalm that you should be able to recognize. See if you remember these words. It's the first line. It's verse one of Psalm 22. See if you can remember who along with David also said these words. David's the one who wrote Psalm 22, but who also said these words? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who was the second person to say that? Jesus on the cross. See, the author of Hebrews knows what he's doing. 
He's using the very words that eyewitness testimonies would have said Jesus spoke on the cross to prove the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Also in Psalm 22, we hear words like this. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. And then he quotes what all those looking at this suffering servant say. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. In Psalm 22, it's not just David talking about how hard his life was at that moment in time. But Psalm 22 was David prophesying about what our suffering Savior Jesus would go through as he, as the true king, not just one who like would, would be like King David, but would be the true suffering King David, would say these words. This is why Psalm 22, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus prophesied what would come. In verse 14 of Psalm 22, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet and I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me and they divide my garments among them. My clothing they cast for lots. See, what the author of Hebrews is doing, this pastor to this church, is he's trying to help them see Jesus for who he was. He, he's trying to help them connect this dot that it is fitting that you would have a savior who would suffer. And having this suffering savior, you would have a brother who can do for you what you could never have done for you so that you can have back true connection with the father. That's why he says it's fitting that he would do this. And that's why he says, the one who is being sanctified, me and you, and the one who does the sanctifying, we all have the same source. So what does it mean and what is the significance when we come to that passage? And it says, he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. We can hear that. Like at first glance, we go, oh, that's so kind. That's so nice of Jesus. He's not ashamed of me. That's good. But for a second, in order to understand the true significance of the fact that Jesus is not ashamed of you, put yourself in his Birkenstocks. Put yourself in his sandals for a second and understand what was going on from his perspective. So first of all, when you think about Jesus and being able to see this fact that he is your brother and he's not ashamed of you right now, first of all, you gotta understand that Jesus and the Father, if he's the older brother, if he's the true son of God, he and the Father have perfect union. There wasn't this time where Jesus was like born and, and then that was the first time that he's like, oh, I have a dad and he happens to be God. No, Jesus is with God from eternity. In the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. He's there. And in this, we see our God, a father with a son. And this father with a son are in perfect. I mean, perfect. You have no idea. Perfect union. They know everything about everything. They are fully aligned in the mission. They are fully aligned in what they will do to bring salvation. They are fully aligned in what salvation and sanctification will look like. They are fully aligned in all that. They are on the same page. And your even best relationship with your earthly father fails in comparison to the relationship between Jesus as the Holy Son and his Holy Father. They're in perfect union, immense love. Now, on top of that, 
Jesus, again, we're walking in his sandals. Not only is he perfect relationship with his father, him and this father, for all of eternity, again, they're all knowing, they're all seeing, they're ever present. They see every sin that everybody has ever committed. Now, let's make it a little bit more personal. This perfect father and this perfect son see every sin that you've committed, every sin that I've committed, all that we've done wrong, all the times where to that father, we've shaken our fist at him and said, how dare you do this in my life? Where we've questioned and put that God on trial. The son has saw every time we did that to his dad. The son has seen every moment where we heard what the father told us to do and we completely ignored it. The son, this Jesus, who's not ashamed to call us brothers, has seen every moment in time where we have seen and talked about how really good this God is and then moments later turned and worshiped idols, money, approval, comfort, power. He has seen every time we have been disrespectful and demeaned his father and robbed that father of the true honor and glory he gives us. And this is the kicker in all of this. Not only does this son, Jesus, have perfect union with the father, see everything that we've done wrong, this Jesus, because he has perfect union with the father, he actually knows how really good he is. He knows how much he really loves you. Like we can be down here on planet earth and McDonald's and be like, I know God loves me, but you have no idea. You haven't had the unbridled magnified glory of God sitting there like Jesus has to be able to see and to know and to savor how much love God has for us down here. He knows how good of a God that is. We, even the best of us, as we go throughout the Bible, we see people who've kind of experienced God. Moses had to veil his face. God, and even then, like God just showed me like the backside of him. Nobody has ever been face to face with God ever. And Jesus has, Jesus knows how glorifying he is. Jesus knows how magnificent is. Jesus has been there with that God. So put all of that together, perfect union with God, seen everything that you've done and knows how good that God is. The only right, just response for Jesus as a son to come to earth, the right, just response is for Jesus to go, how dare you treat my father this way? How dare you? Do you not understand who he is, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you? How dare you? You are going to pay. I'm coming and I'm coming to kill you because that's what you deserve for what you've done to my father. And I, I get this, I get this in my heart and this is what blew my mind as I was thinking about this week. Like I know what it feels like to some extent to have somebody do somebody, something to my earthly father that's unimaginably brutal and painful, dishonoring. I know what it's like for someone to kill my father. And I know what it's like to be a son who with everything inside of me wants to go, I'm gonna, you took my father. You did this to my father. I'm gonna kill you. I know what it's like to wanna do that. And what's wild about Jesus, what's wild about our father is Jesus who had every single right to come down here and flip this world on its head and put every single one of us six feet underground because of the sin we've committed against his holy father. He comes in and says, even though I should hate you and even though I should kill you, I'm going to love you and I'm going to die for you. And 
And this is what the magnitude of him not being ashamed to call us brothers is bound up in. He totally should have been ashamed. This is why we have the story of the prodigal son. We see in the story of the prodigal son, we see the older brother when his younger brother comes back in and he is doing exactly what righteous older brother should be doing. Dad, are you, are you crazy? You're just gonna let him walk back up in here? You're gonna throw a party? You're gonna give him rings? You're killing cows? We're having brisket? Are you serious, dad? I'm leaving this party. I'm done with this. Like the, the, the older brother's son is expecting, like, dad, say the word, I'll kill him. I'll take him to the train station. Why, well, he's done. We got him. He's gone. Because that's what you're supposed to do when you dishonor a father the way that we as sons and daughters have dishonored our father. That's what you do. That's what the righteous, perfect brother should do. But instead, we see a Jesus who has seen every moment where with our pride and indignation have spit in the father's face, we see him come to earth. And there on that Friday, have his face spit in so that we could be sons and daughters. We see this Jesus who has saw every moment where we refuse to remove our crown and let Jesus be the Lord of our life. We see that Jesus take on a crown of thorns, a crown of suffering, a crown of pain so that we can be brought back into the family. We see this Jesus betrayed by all of his close friends who also knows all the moments where we've betrayed his father. We see this Jesus who have watched every time our eyes have seen the glory and magnitude of God and our eyes along with our heart quick to turn. We turn our face away from that father. Jesus saw every moment that we turned our face away from that holy, perfect father. And there on the cross, we see that father in a crazy stroke of scandalous, amazing grace. That father turns his face away from the perfect son to save sons like me and you and daughters like me and you. We see the perfect son take on the sins of all the sons and all the daughters so that he can become sin so that we could be brought in by adoption into this family. And that's why it is amazing, an amazing stroke of grace that he could say, I'm not ashamed of you. Because friend, he had every right to. Now, this is where you've got to see the love of Jesus and the hate of Satan. Satan wants you to continue to feel, oh, I messed up, I did this thing, I'm so ashamed of what I've done. So that you fail to ever realize. How many of you, before I showed you this verse, you'd never saw it? Lots. Never seen it. How many of you in this room, you felt shame? Satan won. He got, he got us in the first round. All right, first quarter, he got us. We've all felt shame. None of us had found a verse where Jesus made it very clear. You have a brother in Jesus who's not ashamed of you, who sees everything, guys. And on top of seeing everything that you've done, sees everything about how good God really is and sees the magnitude of the gap between those two things and steps on in and goes, nah, I'm good. I, I got you. Come on. Well, I'm get you back to the Father. Let's go. And I tell you all this, not to go like, okay, we're talking about sanctification. Jesus is my brother and he's gonna sanctify me. Tell me what I need to do now. Give me my five steps so I can be more sanctified, Trent. Look, 
My whole hope and purpose in preaching to you guys is not so that you sit there with your little journal or your little thing on your phone and taking notes and, and then you get to this point where you go, okay, here are my steps. Step one, do this. Step two, do Step three. My whole purpose in preaching to you the gospel and lifting up Jesus the way I do to you is so you have a moment where you put the pen down, you close the journal and you just glorify Jesus. And, and you just go, I see you for who you really are now. And, and, and I learned this from the pastor of the church of Hebrews. That's all he's doing. How many things has he told them to do so far in the book of Hebrews? One, don't drift. That's all he's told them so far, don't drift. And then even then he says, don't drift. And he just starts magnifying and glorifying and explain how amazing Jesus is. Because what he knows is what I hope you know is that your only hope for sanctification is not you working harder, trying harder, doing your best. Your only hope is seeing Jesus for who he actually is. That's your only hope. That's our only hope. Because when you see Jesus, you are forced to surrender your heart, to lay down your crown and to surrender to sonship, to surrender to daughtership. And so my hope and my purpose today is that you would see Jesus. When you see Jesus and you know who he is, and you experience his love for you, you'll know exactly what to do. It's no coincidence that if seeing and savoring Jesus is our hope and is our purpose, that on a weekly basis, we would have this amazing sacrament that is communion so that we wouldn't just have moments in time where I can go, okay, well, I'm gonna open my word. I'm gonna see Jesus. I'm gonna come and I'm gonna hear preaching. It's gonna magnify Jesus. But every week you can receive communion and go, I can see what's been done for me. And it's not just one sensory experience. I mean, really, if you want to, you can smell it. That's kind of weird, but... Uh, on top of being able to see it. This is what's magnifying about communion. It's not just something I see, I look at, and I go throw in the trash after I looked at it real close. What is it? It becomes a part of me. It's not just something I see, it's something I taste and see. But the Lord is good. He gave his life for me so I could be adopted in to a new family. So I could lay all of my shame aside and know that the one who had every right to be ashamed of me chose not to be and welcomes me in as a son and daughter and says, come on in. And today after we receive communion, you're gonna see a young girl experience that very truth as she gives her life to Jesus, is dead and buried with him under the waters of baptism and is raised up to new life. We're gonna celebrate like crazy. And while we're doing that, we're gonna partner with angels in heaven as they celebrate that one more soul became numb to everything that shame would try to do to it. As it realizes that our brother Jesus was dead and buried and rose to new life. And I can have new life in him too. If you're here and you wanna be baptized as well, I'll be back there in the back. You can come talk to me. We'll baptize you as well. If you have never accepted or received what your older brother Jesus has done from you, you're outside of the family. You're not a child of God. But salvation is here today, friend, and it's found only in Christ. If you wanna give your life to him and receive that salvation, go through the waters of baptism, be raised up and made something new, made a new child and a new family, I would be honored to do that today. I'll be in the back, come and see me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you that when it's preached, it has the power to change lives. And I pray that you would do just that. I, I can't 
to do it with my words, but I know you can with yours. Father, you tell us that when you are lifted up, you would draw all men to yourself. And I pray that you are lifted up today. And I pray Satan would not get in the way of how you're trying to draw people to you. I pray even now as the silence of this room is happening that some of the saints in this room will begin to whisper prayers for those who are far off. If you're in here with us and you know you walk with and you know you're following Jesus, would you just turn your prayers right now from praying for yourself and pray for the lost in this room. Pray that they would surrender to the new family. That they would finally accept what their older brother has done. Jesus, we rejoice in what you have done. We rejoice in the fact that you told us it was finished. And we look forward to the days to come. where even though we have experienced this salvation in these moments down here on earth, we will spend the rest of eternity experiencing what it means to be a son and a daughter. And I long for that glory. I long for that journey. I long for the days when we get to wake up and not wonder how much time is left what tomorrow is going to bring because we're forever with you where we were meant to be from the beginning Father I pray today you would help somebody find their way back to you 